You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hey, everybody. My name's Tim Muirhead, and I'm going to be your host for today. We have something really special, so welcome aboard, sit down, and get ready to learn all about the film I Am Mother. If you haven't seen it yet, it's available on Netflix. It was made in Australia, and we're doing two interviews with people in Australia, so I had to get up crazy early in the morning to make the time zones work. So first up, we have an interview with four of the members of the sound team, and they're going to go through how they brought the robot in the film to life and made the world really come to life. And then following that, we're going to have an interview with Grant Spatore, who is the director of the film. That's right, we here at Tonebenders roll that way. We roll the interview with the sound crew first. The director can wait. Uh, Grant was a really great interview, so make sure you stay in for that. Uh, So we're going to run the sound team first, and then uh, run the interview with the director. So stay tuned, and uh, go check out the film if you haven't seen it. It's really great. We have a special guest host today, longtime friend of the show, Carlos Manrique Clavico. How are you, Carlos? I'm great, Tim. Thanks for having us in. No problem. Carlos recently worked as the mix assistant on the Netflix film I Am Mother and reached out to let me know that the sound design of the film was really cool. When it was released, I watched it and I really loved the film. Sound plays a major role in the film's overall design, so I jumped at the chance to talk with him and some of the sound crew on Tonebenders. So in addition to Carlos, we have Pete Smith, the re-recording engineer who worked on Hotel Mumbai as well. He also worked on The Babadook, so he's a very bad person who scared the crap out of me at one point, and I'm not very pleased with Pete. He's going to have to really work to get in my good books here. How you doing, Pete? Oh, I'm very well, thank you, Tim. Excellent. Also joining us is Duncan Campbell, who is a sound designer and Foley recordist. He also worked on the international animated film Ugly Dolls. How are you doing, Duncan? Good, how are you? Really good. We also have Tom Hoytzenroder, who worked on Pitch Perfect 3 and Gringo as a sound editor and was sound designer on I Am Mother. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Imagine a doctor has five patients, all in need of different organ transplants, but no compatible organs are available. One day, a sixth patient enters a doctor's office with a life-threatening condition. The new patient is curable, but also an organ match for the five other patients. If the doctor simply delays treatment, the new patient will die, but their organs could be used to save the other five patients. If the doctor treats the new patient, one life will be saved, but five others will be lost. What is the doctor's best course of action? Daughter? Hey guys, so would you like to share with us some examples of things that you wanted to achieve when you were starting on the project? Any goals, any challenges that you were expecting in the sound design and the mix? We didn't really know what to expect. I mean, it's one of those things where you let the picture guide you, but the knowledge that you're working on this kind of a film, you know, a sci-fi film with a robot in it, then you've already got certain preconceived ideas about how things might at least start out. And then once uh, direction comes in, then it goes down its own path. Tom and I saw an early, we were called in by the post company and we saw an early cut of the film that was quite long and it was a rough cut but it really gave us a good idea of what was installed for us because it was a a set-based piece it had a a practical robot in it that made a lot of noise and it was a hard watch 
and we came away and we went down the pub for a drink <laughs> and we sat there and panicked <laughs> and then had to come back and sort of deal with um, our post-supervisor and then work out the schedule and then go through the creative path with Grant Spatour, the director, in just working out where we go from here because it was just a total blank canvas. So how did it work in this particular film for you guys to have two sound designers involved on the same project? How did you split the work? How did you collaborate? We saw an early cut. I was pegged as sound designer from that point. And um, after I got started, then Duncan came on board and quickly assumed the role as the co-sound designer. It was basically Tom, you had the job of putting the robot together. That was a big priority of the film because... That's right, that was the thing that obviously was screaming out to get started on. Uh, and the director was also very keen to sort of hear what we had to offer in that department. It was a little bit fragmented at times because Tom and I would step off and jump on another project and then one of us would be left holding the, <laughs> holding the, uh, holding the project. So, so we'd take each other's work and redefine it as well. I saw that you guys were doing some early experiments in the Foley stage as well in terms of defining the sounds of the robot. There was sort of a sound design element to the robot but also we used Foley to kind of act as a sort of a cloth track <laughs> made up of vacuum cleaner parts and various bits of metal. Tom took on the robot, a lot of the UI stuff, some of the machine system sounds. Generators and stuff. Generators. And I started getting on with things like hard effects and doors and the big drone flyover and atmospheres, mm. backgrounds. Who handled all the light buzzes and uh, feedbacky sounds? Those were fantastic. I remember doing some experimentations through audio mulch. Yeah. But the end sequence, you cut a massive flickering sequence. Oh, that's it. right, yeah. 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 Is that the end sequence, Tim, you're talking about? Yeah, the sequence where the power in the facility is going on and off and all the lights in the background are constantly flickering. Yeah. And I found that in addition to buzzes, there is these kind of almost feedbacky type sounds, which is maybe what you were using audio mulch for. But they were really adding to the score and the tension of that scene, these pulses and high-pitched moans almost. It was a really well-worked-out scene. I thought it was fantastic. Well, that whole end sequence was a very hard... There was a lot of material, Pete, right, to deal with? There was a lot of choices yeah. to be made and that we ended up playing it quite a few times to really get a good balance on the tension in that sequence and it ended up just being a handover between score and design rather than everything playing on top of each other. We just had to keep on handing off from one to the other and the baby cries and all of that for building it up. So it was a lot of stuff to weed through initially but a good blend by not taking one or the other. I remember having listened to one of the early playouts of it and going, wow, it's a very busy sequence, as this guy said. There's important dialogue happening, there's the presence of the baby, like you said, and you've got bangs and explosions happening all over the place as well. Yeah, mm. perspective shifts and all that yeah. kind of stuff as well. Yeah, it's a tour de force scene. It also climaxes with all the sound being taken out and you just hear a voice with no BGs and then you hear the voice kind of ring off into reverb. It's really cool the way that sequence wound up. Did you plan to have the sound all pulled out or did that get discovered in the mix? It was a thing that Grant and Sean Laheef, the editor, always had in mind. And it was something that they had mocked up in their Avid, but it was 
quite simple, which was great, it was effective, but getting all of those elements in and out became a bit of a challenge on the stage. But it was a direction that Sean and Grant had from the word go with that sequence. But we went through a lot of different permutations with what was happening off screen and telling that story that the battle droids were coming in and cutting backwards and forwards. But because we didn't know when or where things were going to be taken out, Tom and Duncan laid up everything. Yeah, and I remember even during the final stages of the mix, we had machines aside in the mix theatre. Yeah, the old story, there were constant visual effects updates happening during the mix. So there's always one of us in the room acting as a sort of a stage editor. So you mentioned earlier that the practical robot on set made a lot of noise. Mm. So did that mean that this film has a ton of ADR? Amazingly, it doesn't. Des Keneally, the sound recorders, did a um, fantastic job of capturing the sound. Um, Luke Hawker, who was the wetter performer that was performing inside the suit, was also mic'd up and he was performing the dialogue. And that dialogue stayed for a long time. So we had the practical sound of the robot creaking and grinding and everything, plus it had fans in it, so it was making noises, and Luke was actually delivering lines of dialogue mic'd up inside that Clara was reacting to. So I had to do a pass of initially just going through and just assessing for ADR, and it was amazing how much we were able to save by... They would be able to turn the fans off of the robot and just have maybe the small servos that were operating the iris. So that was going on and that could be RXed out. So it was quite an extensive review part early on in the process of finding out what could be saved. And we kept Luke's dialogue for quite some time in the edit. So Grant and Sean were cutting with Luke's dialogue in there. And then I had to do a pass of cleaning up that dialogue which was um, we had to do a submission for some screeners. So we had to do a, a really rough temp mix and I ended up using RX mouse de-click a lot on the robot just to get rid of the plastic <laughs> clicking and grinding and, and all of that. So it was working pretty hard. But yes, like I said, Des Keneally did a fantastic job of just isolating the non-robot dialogue from both daughter and Hilary Swank's character. And um, we got away with minimum ADR. There was some ADR that had to be done, but very, very little, which was quite surprising because after that initial screening, we thought the whole film was going to be ADR that we wouldn't be able to save anything. Wow, that's really impressive. Now that you mentioned ADR, I was going to ask you about the definition of the character of Mother through the voice because I know that you were involved very early on and started playing with different ways of processing it as well. Yeah, I mean, the voice of a robot in a film is always exciting sort of to jump into and you end up going a bit crazy first off, but then you realise that this voice has to sustain um, <laughs> a lot of emotion, a lot of character for the whole of the film. So, so it can't be over-processed. It can't be over-processed. And I used a variety of plugins and guitar rack devices and distortion and all of that kind of stuff. And there was a constant stream of people coming past the edit room um, <laughs> giving their opinion of how they think that the robot should sound. And in the end, it just kept on getting backed off further and further so that there's a minimum processing that's sort of left. There's some distortion, there's some flanging, there's some spatial shifting and bits and pieces, but it's all been dialed way, way, way back. And we just use it subtly to change the intensity sometimes when the mother character started getting a bit agitated. Has she mentioned anyone else? No, she, uh, she hasn't said much at all. 
Nothing? Until I can get more answers, I don't want you two alone in the infirmary. Whoever shot her may have had good reason, daughter. And we didn't have the final Rose Burns voice until quite late in the piece, so that was another thing as well, that it was a new element that came in for everyone. And it was amazing how that suddenly changed the film. You know, everyone had been used to the lines of dialogue that Luke inside the suit had been delivering, and, you know, everyone had got used to that version of the film, and then suddenly Rose Burns' voice came in and everyone had to step back and go, whoa, okay, now we're seeing the film a totally different way and it's having a whole new set of reactions and emotions and that kind of stuff. Once Rose Burns' voice went in as well, then I prepped the ADR takes initially and then handed them back to editorial and they had another go around recutting a few scenes because the edit was so governed by Luke's performance that now that the new character was in, they had to go back and just refinesse some scenes to deal with the new performance. And of course, because there's no lip sync dealing with the robot, but there are quite specific movements that the robot was making that that needed to be timed and retimed. So we had another round of picture edits going through then we had another round of more recordings. That process went around and of course this was all happening quite late in our schedule. So Tom and Duncan had already done the majority of their sound design and now these subtle changes of things were going on and we all had to deal with that as we do. Yes. <laughs> were you guys able to keep any of the servos from the original robot? Tell the story about, you know the one I'm telling you. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the actual design work for the robot was based on some of the servo noises that I had heard from the production slates. And so, yes, they did inform to a degree the way things would go for me. For the actual design work, I used a motor from a microwave turntable, which, you know, makes a very high-pitched zizz, you know, when you twist it. And so I sampled that a bit and used different performances of it. But the motors in the production slates actually were quite similar. So there was a particular scene where mother and daughter are having an intimate conversation across a table, and all of daughter's dialogue in that scene had quite a lot of the servos from the suit that Luke was wearing. So we cleaned up that track as much as we could, but then we ended up needing to put some of the noise back in, in very specific points in between lines of dialogue, just to make it seem like that was just part of the design of Mother's servos anyway. But the fact that it, when it first played, it sounded like there was more in there, but when we actually went in and strategically helped along what was in the production track. It felt like there was less noise going on. Yeah, it's amazing how it sounded really noisy and terrible before we had done any work on it. And then after we'd gone back and finessed it, accepting the noises that we couldn't get out under the lines of dialogue, then you didn't question it after that. And, you know, it was the scene just played. That's awesome. Are you having nightmares about servos when you were finishing this film? <laughs> uh, no, I think it was more the actual footfalls, the footsteps of Mother that um, I guess I spent more time on. And, you know, as Duncan mentioned earlier, you know, we went into the Foley stage to just record a few bits and pieces. They were just things that I could take away as a bit of a library of experiments that I could use to try and come up with the sound of Mother when she's walking. And... Um, 
I went out and did my own recordings just with old bits of junk and that sort of thing lying around just to add some more mechanics to it all but um, I ended up using a drum replacer program and sampled a whole bunch of footsteps in and then was able to trigger the footsteps within the drum replacer program to get Mother's walking performance as I needed it to go. So what was triggering the drum replacer? Well, I recorded in just with a mic. I just did a vocal trigger track into Pro Tools and put that in sync with the picture. And then as low latency as possible, I then used that to trigger the samples in the drum replacer program and shifted it back as I needed to just to account for the delay. The interesting thing is that the first time I did it, I went through and I was pretty accurate with whenever I saw the footfall, I would put a trigger there. And so my first round of footsteps, they were very accurately in sync, but Mother didn't actually sound all that good or didn't sound very accurate or metronomic. And so after a bit of a discussion with Grant and Pete, who were reviewing this at the time, I went back and blurred the lines of sync just a little bit in order to be able to have a more accurate sounding and more rhythmic sounding set of footsteps. Because um, you kind of go... Do, do. Yeah, that's right. That's right, you know, because Grant kept on saying, you know, Mother is a high-performance machine and everything she does is with precision. But, you know, in my first attempt at all this, it sounded like Luke was a bit drunk, but that's only because he had a huge suit on and was, you know, dealing with all of that. Yeah, the precision becomes menacing over the course of the film. Yeah. Well, the beauty of the way Tom set up the footsteps is we had basically, it was about six sounds. And so. Yeah, I was able to use the same trigger track to produce various components that were all in sync with each other. So once I got the trigger track correct, then I was able to give that component of the footstep and then another one and another one. And depending on how close Mother was in the scene, these various elements could be mixed independently so that you, know, you could add in a bit of perspective. There was also like four or maybe there was six actual feet tracks that I had access to in the mix so that at any point we could vary the threat of mother by increasing the bass thump track versus the rattly grate track versus the soft pad. So for a lot of the time when mother was just going around her day to day business, we weren't using the bass component or the metal component that was just a soft pad one. But once again, as the drama unfolds and she gets more agitated, then those other layers were added in and increased. So it was quite a dynamic mix just in that feet part of it. And um, I don't know, there was many, many tracks of mother's movements to do with iris servos versus body servos versus head turns and all of that. So I think in the end I had probably about six or seven VCA groups that then were feeding off 40-odd tracks of components, and mm. each of those could be varied, which was great because of that thing, once again, we've just got to make sell this robot for the entire length of the film and also work in the dramatic points as well. So it was great to have that flexibility. Mm. And Grant, the director, also hooked onto that. So it was a really good tool for ramping up tension. Yeah, it's an interesting challenge because Mother never yells. Mother is speaking essentially the same way the entire film. So you have to sell that tension through her sound effects that surrounded her voice. Yeah. yeah. When Mother runs past. <laughs> yeah, that's right. She runs pretty heavily. <laughs> the only people who can help your brother are out there. 
We need to go. Now. Another aspect to that was the servo motors for her movements and head movements and torso swivels and that sort of thing. I ended up creating a library which, again, I wanted to do it so that I could perform it and I ended up having a friend of mine, Jakub, creating a patch in the Kima sound design system and this enabled me to vocalise pitch into a mic and that would then trigger off various components that would generate servo motor noises, but with the ability to perform the pitch as well as the duration and the intensity, that became quite powerful and I was able to do that quite quickly going through the film. So you guys have talked about how the character of Mother and the different components of the character of Mother allowed you to create that transition between a friendlier version of her or a more threatening version of her. How about the world around it? You were working in a very reduced space. It was always inside the bunker. Can you tell us a little bit about how you built that world and how you built different emotions in that world? I think the hard sell with the bunker was that it's built solidly. So there's no winds. There's not terribly much machinery around. But there were certain rooms, like the infirmary, the boiler room. That made the most noise with all the steam. But definitely with the doors, the airlocks area, that we made that a lot more industrial. We used a lot of mine equipment clunks. The development of the sound of the bunker adheres to the development of the story quite strictly. In the start of the film, we definitely played the atmosphere sort of a bit more straight. And then as things start to get a bit more tense, then we add in sounds that would sort of create this sort of ship sinking. Or we use a lot of rumbles and rattles, especially when they're running out in the scene before they get outside. Machines turn off and on and degas. Yeah, lots of fun to play with. You did get a really good sense of, even though the bunker sound wasn't sounding so big, but the couple of sequences where the power goes down. Yeah. Mm. So you go from a situation where you don't think there's a lot of ambiences going on, then the big power goes down and you drop down a notch, but actually instead of just going to silence, you added in other lower tones and not winds as it were, but yeah. more like tonal winds tonal and mm, just, just yeah. things that are a bit creepier and yeah, and mm. that give a sense of isolation or being alone or claustrophobic. I think, yeah, the scene where the power goes out to where Hilary Swank's character appears, I think sonically it was so much fun to go from power going out, things winding down, systems degassing, Johnny Carson playing off in the reverb. Mm playing with subtle buzzes of the flashlight, the reverb of the doors and the silence in the atmosphere. It was very dynamic. And she walks, over, yeah, walks yeah. over to the airlock door control and then a big, big metal door coming out of what was quiet just before it. Yeah, that's right. It's very dynamic, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. What was the schedule for this film? How long did you have to edit and what was the mixed stage schedule? In actual edit weeks, we only had sort of about seven weeks, but times three of us. And the mix was only slated for, well, it was only a three or four week mix, including pre-mix. But the schedule didn't really kind of lend itself to that because we kept on coming on and off the job quite sporadically, waiting for cast, waiting for composers, doing some picture changes. And in the meantime, we were always needing to keep a rolling temp mix up to date. So it seemed like every month or so we'd come back into the mixing theatre just to do another four day mix. And then that would sit on the shelf for a while 
get reconformed and then we come back in. And instead of actually having a, a really good chunk of time sitting in the mixing stage, completing the whole job, it ended up being that we came back probably three or four times to work on these rolling temp mixes that just became the final mix as we went along. I'd finished all the pre-dubs and the Sundance submission temp mix sprung on us. So it was a two-day mix and the producers and director and, and editor were with me in the mix. And that was the most revealing time of the mix at all because it was great to have everything that was pre-dubbed and then it was that broad brushstroke style of mixing where it was just kind of like story, 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 story. And that was a great thing. So it was a bit of a rough mix, but it really just set the bed for how to go forward from there and then just keep on finessing that and reconforming. And then we hung on to that mix right to the end of just keep on rolling and finessing and finessing that. So that was a good way of working in the end. Everyone was on the right page because they knew that that had worked and we just had to finesse it. Of course, Tom and Duncan would then have to come back in and fill in the gaps because there was some pretty rough editing going on in the mixing stage as well. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was just handed back saying, can you make this better now? <laughs> there was this crazy week at some point where I think there were 300 edits done in a very short amount of time. And you guys had to do a reconform of those 300 edits in less than a week? Yeah, and there was no scenes dropped in those edits, so it was all trims. And we'd had the score delivered by then as well, so it wasn't a case of redesigning the score. It was just a case of patching and blending and moving forward like that. It was all stemmed out. The music was stemmed out quite wide, so that was good. And as you can tell by the music, it is quite tonal. There are some long sections but sometimes they were getting out of sync with themselves so fortunately Grant was well across the music and knew the score quite well so he knew how he wanted to reconfigure it to hit the beats that he wanted to keep on hitting. Was there any collaboration between the score and the sound design or did it just show up at the mix? We didn't have score we had a great temp score which they were quite wedded to for quite a long time and that was what everyone was dealing with, certainly Tom and Duncan. Mm. And then once we did get the score in, there was still scope because it was stemmed out so wide. And we actually had been sending stems of these temp mixes back to the composer as well. So they were aware of what was happening in the sound design and we became aware of what was happening in the score. But there wasn't a lot of actual Cross-talk. Cross-talk, mm. yes. I think Grant was always across what was going on. Yeah. That yeah. was a thing. He was the, the conduit between sound and music in, in that sense. So the majority of the film takes place inside the bunker, and then about three-quarters of the way through the film, all of a sudden the doors open and we go outside. And it's a very different environment all of a sudden. How did you guys tackle the outside world? <laughs> <laughs> we tackle it. We definitely tried to make it open up because going from inside to outside, we wanted to make it go a lot wider. But we went through and cut lots of spot winds and sand gusts and tree creeks occasionally. I don't know if they made it in the end. And a few drones here and there. Um, <laughs> uh, but that was a sequence that changed a lot too, wasn't it, in terms of visual effects? Yeah, in fact, that was one section that we kept waiting to see how would it end up. And we were getting on with other bits of the film while we were waiting for the visual effects to turn over. But I think in terms of the atmospheres, you put a whole lot more movement and, yeah. and turbulence. Yeah. 
I guess also because you haven't been listening to that kind of stuff for the first, you know, however long in the film. So then suddenly when you do go outside and you hear the water droplets and you hear the corn rustle and you hear the wind as you haven't heard it previously, then it kind of really hits you, particularly when it's given a grand entrance with the airlock doors opening in a very dramatic kind of way. And I guess having the drone that flies over excite the elements around it as well. That was a sound design challenge and also a mixed challenge once the music arrived to sort of see which elements are going to play at what point. We played a lot with that doppler truck muffler kind of sound, that yeah. sound that helped place the drone in certain POVs. Yeah. The drone flyover seemed to get shorter and shorter each oh, time. Oh, yeah, that's right. Every time we saw it, it got a bit shorter. Come on. we got to go. looking for us? If it was, it would have found us. So in terms of process, you guys had some big sound design sessions with many, many, many tracks and when they made it to the mix stage, you had actually bounced some of those food mm. groups and, and families. Can you talk a little bit about the process? All the hard effects we pre-mixed. How many stems did we, was it about 10? Mm. 10 maybe a bit more than well, that. Maybe 16. 16, 5.1 stems for hard effects, but we ran the robot live, like a Foley truck almost. Yeah. But I think that was probably the best decision. It allowed Pete, you know, not get bogged down. Where's that bit of steam or... Yeah. So we pre-mixed in our edit rooms quite extensively and enabled the track numbers to come down to a more manageable amount. Otherwise, it just literally would have been hundreds and hundreds of tracks, which in the time that we had to mix it would have been insurmountable. And then we would just have stage editions as we go, which sat on their own set of tracks, or we'd re-record a stem if needed. Yeah, that's right. You had all the components for your pre-dub just inactive and available in the session so that if anything ever needed to be modified, it would just be a matter of enabling that group, making the change, reprinting it for that section, and then disabling those tracks and making that bit live again. Now, the other thing I was going to ask you guys in terms of process was, are there any tools that make your life easier, things that speed up your process? So I know that Pete uses a lot, Keyboard Maestro, Duncan uses Soundflow. Um, what are some of the things that you guys use? I use Soundflow a lot. It's basically a company that have designed a set of shortcuts. I think they've kind of tunneled into the APIs of Pro Tools so that you can assign various workflow macros and shortcuts to keys. So I use a Stream Deck, which is sort of a gaming keyboard device to then trigger these macros. So I have things like preview and write to selection and create temp group, delete temp group, colorless volume to click gain, you know, things like that. Tom, what do you use? I just use a keyboard and a mouse. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, nothing really special. Actually, 
Duncan and I have adjacent sound editing rooms and what we actually set up, which made our workflow quite efficient at times, is we had a little server running that we were both plumbed into and we would have bounces of each other's sessions just sitting on the server and we would have live Pro Tools edit sessions open Duncan's in his room and mine in mine and we would be referencing each other's bounces that were just sitting on the server but the great thing was that Duncan or I could update the bounce and do a destructive record into it and then immediately the change would appear in my system. That's pretty cool. Did that ever backfire on you? We had to get used to it a bit for caging. Um, if Duncan and I were working on the same section then it might take a while for his update to appear in my session because the old version would still be in RAM in the playback cache. But it's just a matter of jumping to another bit, letting it recache and then coming back and then it's updated and just blowing away the waveform cache and redoing that if that were necessary. That's really cool. I've never done that. I didn't think that it would work, to be honest with you, but that's great to know that it does. <laughs> what was your favourite scene to work on? I've actually spoken about mine in the first half of the film where the power goes down up into the gunshot. Yeah, I think we really honed and refined our ideas and what the sound of the film would eventually play like in that section. Mm. You know, that section informed us a lot. Once it, we felt right about how that played, we set the base palette in a sense. I think my favourite scene is from when daughter comes back to the bunker and confronts mother. That's the culmination of all yeah. of those things that Tom just said. Definitely when she first walks back into the bunker, the music changes a lot. And then you've got these, did some sound design process light flickers, and they both seem to dance off each other really nicely. Was there anything that you remember about the process that really stuck in your memory? The big thing for me is that we lived for so long in the process with Luke, the performer's voice and the creaky suit. And then, because you know things aren't finished until they're finished, it wasn't until the end that you actually get to hear and see everything together and go, okay, we did it. We actually made <laughs> We made the robot come to life and it's not just a man in a suit. Yeah. <laughs> so now that you mentioned Luke's voice, does anyone want to share that little Easter egg? There is a part in the film where you can hear Luke, the guy inside the robot suit, and, you know, one of his original tracks. It's not as it originally played, but in the part where woman jumps onto mother and has a fight with her in the infirmary and damages mother and hydraulic fluid spills out. There's a part there where the voice circuit is a bit damaged as well and it starts dicing up the voice and so... We snuck in a little bit of Luke's track in there, all die stuff. <laughs> that was our little Easter egg. When that moment happens, when the vocal cord goes bananas, I out loud went, yes. <laughs> it works really well. That's a really cool moment. It's, it's almost too short. I wanted more of it. It's only like a couple seconds long. It should have been five minutes of that. It was awesome. <laughs> you didn't talk too much about the actual foley. No. Mm. Adrian's mm. awesome spent, foley. Spent most of it in socks. Yes. Socks on a middle grade. <laughs> so we had Adrian Medhurst, Foley artist, and Ryan Squires recording. Their job was basically to cover for M&E and footsteps, spot effects. 
a lot of the film daughter's walking around in socks and she goes from walking on hard services to great services. Middle great. Middle great services. And we ended up taking those great footsteps and processing them slightly with Altiverb as well to sort of make it sound like it was a little deeper. Yeah, so like using an impact on the great as an impulse impulse, in in Altiverb. Yeah, socks are so tough. (laughs) (laughs) They don't read all that easily, do they? And yet they have to. Yeah. (laughs) I can't believe you guys did that in seven weeks. That kind of melted my brain when you told me that you only had seven weeks. It was was, seven to eight 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 weeks. Yeah, Yeah, it was tough. Yeah. And we did did have, um, we brought on another editor, Lachlan Harris, for a week just to um, deal with some of the VFX updates. 300 edit changes in one round. That's impressive, too. That's a hair puller out right there. Yeah. (laughs) But we'd constantly get sort of new stubs at the material because the updates would come through. A lot of updates come through on the mix stage. So there was sort of some of the sounds were kind of, you know, designed to a point and then... As soon as the visual effects showed up, we're like, oh, okay, that's what's going on. All right, let's, let's, let's fix <laughs> yeah, this up. That's right. We'll redefine it all. Yeah, that puts your chops to the test. If, yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. This major element, you now have five minutes. Figured <laughs> yeah. <out. laughs> oh, yeah. Go. There was a couple of those moments. <laughs> For sure. Years ago, years ago, like in the late 90s, I worked on a film with a bunch of CG stuff. And when we did the final mix, some of the, it had not arrived yet. <laughs> and there was a big miscommunication. A rocket, we were told, takes off. This is a rocket we didn't see. Takes off and shoots off to the right. And then when we saw the screening of the film, the rocket takes off and shot off to the left. Oh. So the sound <laughs> totally went the wrong way. <laughs> We'd panned it off to the wrong direction. And we were just like, well, that's, that happens, I guess. But luckily, uh, that's <laughs> the system, it's a lot better than the 90s now, I guess you can put it that way. <laughs> Cool. Cool. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. As I said, I was really impressed with the film. I love movies that set up rules within their own world. And this movie has some cool rules that make you jump right in and go along with the story. And I believe it's on Netflix worldwide. So anybody listening, go check it out. It's a really cool movie. Thank you guys for staying late to talk to us today. Everyone go see this movie. It was super fun. Thank you so much thank for you waking very much. up early. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm going back to bed now. (laughs) (laughs) Did this really happen? It wasn't a dream. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. We are sitting down with Grant Sputore, the writer and director of the amazing sci-fi film I Am Mother. We're reaching him today in Perth, Australia. It's the evening for him, and it's really early in the morning for me. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us, Grant. Welcome aboard. Hey, no, thank you for waking up really early to talk to me. (laughs) Grant, it seems like this film is a little more dependent on sound than your average kind of first-time feature. You need deaf sound work to sell the robot and make it feel real. So how did you go about communicating with the sound team for this film? Did you let them lead the way, or how did you uh, give them instructions to make it all come to life? I'll say that this film is really more reliant on a lot of things (laughs) than most first films. I was blessed in that way, that it's a very ambitious film, conceptually, budgetarily, and also in terms of the the craft of the technicians that were going to be involved, you know, whether it's the sort of creation of the robot or the creation of the set, and in post-production, the sort of creation of a world through sound design. 
And through all of those phases, I was very involved, whether it was creating my own concept art for both the robot or the environment. And obviously on set, I'm directing the cinematographer and I'm working with the actors to create the performances that are going to get this story told. Probably the thing I was least involved in was the sound of this film. You know, at a certain point, I got very involved and and had weeks of lovely time in the mixing suite with Pete and Duncan and Carlos and those guys. But the sort of sound design process that Duncan and Tom were doing was happening simultaneous to the edit, which was all-consuming. And some wires got crossed and schedules weren't clear, and I really wasn't too focused on the sound, despite how important it was going to be. And it was one of the very rare times through the filmmaking process, and this is not a comment on the crew members I was blessed to be working with generally because everybody was amazing, but very rarely are you pleasantly surprised through the process of filmmaking. Like, it's just a a constant battle against the elements. And also, you know, like, your own capacity to explain your vision. Like, you know, as a director, it's your job to try and make clear to those around you the way it needs to be and why. And that takes time, that takes effort, but it didn't in the case of the sound team. Like, these guys, under their own steam, basically came up with the world of I Am Mother and what it should sound like and how it should work. And probably 10% of the time I'd be like, you know what, your first instinct wasn't totally right here and here's why, and we would then refine it. But a pretty incredible palette, well-established by the time that we got to where we needed to be. So how did you sit down and have a spotting session with them if the film wasn't done yet? At what point did you bring in the sound team? Because there was so much R&D involved in working out what Mother would sound like, they were going simultaneously. I know Tom did some work with app designers so he could sort of almost puppeteer the sound process. He would take a pen to a tablet and move it around and he could create the movements of Mother without having to slice things up. So that sort of process was happening while we were editing. And we continued to tinker with the edit right up until the day we delivered it, actually. Everything was happening in tandem. I had a few sessions with the guys talking about the fact that this needed to feel utilitarian and real, really based in reality, not hyper-stylized. And that was something that we would come back to again and again and say, like, this isn't a Transformers movie. That sounds a bit too bombastic. Like, things need to be really based in technology that exists now and that audiences are familiar with. And we did watch the film through and highlight sequences where sound was going to be crucially important or when there's going to be a particularly stylized interpretation of a moment, like when daughter first hears Hillary outside. You know, we talked about the fact that the sound is all going to drop away here and we're really going to make a moment of this. And likewise, when Clara comes back to the bunker and the military droids are there, this is going to be score-free and it's really going to be about the atmosphere and the silence and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, we go through and talk about the intention or the focus of scenes from an auditory point of view, but not really the specifics. And I guess that's what I mean about these guys showing up and their first instincts just being gobsmackingly on point. I'd say something airy-fairy like the sound is going to go muffled here to really put us inside daughter's head and we're going to lose the detail and then there'll be a high-pitched whine that comes up or something like that. But a high-pitched whine, like there's 25 different high-pitched whines and 20 of those are probably terrible and cheesy. And then five of them like are just different choices that are available. And any of those five could well be great, um, but these guys would seem to have a knack for picking the one or two that I would never have thought of myself but think was an incredibly inspired choice. So 
Were you in the same city as the sound team while it was happening? Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> when I'm saying I was absent through more of it than even I might have liked or expected to have been, it was really the sound design part of the process. Like when it came to mixing, I was there every day with those guys. And through the mixing process, you have the capacity to change certain sounds anyway. And often it's a case of like, you've got five elements making one sound, you only need three or four of those perhaps, or you need to mix with the volumes of the various components. But what Tom and Duncan did was incredible and largely unsupervised. So I think we had a briefing session we probably had a playthrough of certain reels again at some point through the process. I'd highlighted a couple of spots that I thought needed more work or weren't quite right. And then probably before we knew it, we were mixing the movie. So what did you take from the sound process on this movie that you found either surprising or you learned from that you plan to implement into your next film? It'll sound really naive, but I guess I was naive. I'd not made a film before. I've made a lot of short films and commercials but it isn't always a one-to-one -one extrapolation. You work on a 30-second spot or a 60-second spot and you think, well, okay, this will only be 120 times harder than that one minute of content I just created. Whereas in reality, the emphasis shifts around. And I will say that mixing was a hell of a lot more important than I realised. Like in a TV commercial, you know, you're not dealing with surround, you don't have quite the same range to play with. So sound design tends to be more important, like what sounds you're putting where or what sounds aren't there. But the real subtleties of a mix in terms of not just where music is, but also how music enters, how it rides through a scene is so much more of an art form than I could have imagined. Or at least I was convinced of that fact by Pete and his uh, showmanship. <laughs> he, he was uh, very passionate about doing things by hand, get hands on dials and kind of actually ride and feel a scene. You could feel the magic when it, when it was just right. So are you the kind of director that sits at the back of the room and doesn't say anything? Or are you uh, right over their shoulders telling them what to do? I probably borderline on being a micromanager in, in some ways, usually, but I just try to ingratiate myself with whoever it is I'm working with to the point that it's a collaboration that we both find really exciting. By the time we were mixing the film, the editing process had been shelved and was largely complete, so I was very available to be in the room with those guys, and I loved being in the room with those guys. I hope whatever they <laughs> said on their side of the interview kind of matches up with this. <laughs> They were brutal, like it was ruthless <laughs> what they said about you. Just, no, all love, all love. Yeah, I just have really fond memories of the whole thing and I felt like I interjected only where I needed to. There was a really satisfying, simpatico-like and shared sensibility between all of us, I think. I'd work with them again in a heartbeat. I hope they Well, we'll the same. see if they'll work with yeah, you, Yeah, that's eh? right. That's no, the real question. <laughs> So can you give me an example of a time that they really wowed you or where your aesthetics clashed and you guys worked together to find a different route with the sound? The robot. There was a lot of work to be done determining exactly what she would sound like. And that was one of those instances where it was 90% of the way there, but there was one really squeaky servo that actually to me sounded like a a squeaky toy, and we just took that out and suddenly that was mother, like she was there. So I give them a lot of credit with that because there's plenty of room where that could have gone wrong. That was lucky slash inspired that they were able to get that so right on the first pass. And then when you get in the mix with Pete, it's really heartening to have a mixer who can appreciate the craft of what the sound design team have done but isn't precious about it or beholden to it. And he's like... 
We know she's a robot. We don't need to hear every servo twitch every time she moves her wrist or head or hand. We don't necessarily need that accent. There'll be an instinct for when we need to be reminded or when it feels right, but Pete was pretty shameless about turning that stuff down. Once we're in the drama of this scene, it's just characters interacting with one another and pops and whirs of various motors are just a distraction that we don't want. You could have easily have had a mixer who felt the opposite, you know, like this is the sci-fi buy-in that's the centerpiece of this story. It's about a robot. Why would we diminish that? But it was Pete's instinct that it's about these characters and it's about the drama and the connection and the relationships between them. Let's put the emphasis there, which was reassuring and gratifying. And once that was the philosophy, we were all on board with it. So there's a good interplay between music and sound effects in this film. And you mentioned earlier that there are points where you took the music right out. Was that in the script stage or did you discover that throughout the mix? Or how did you come to those conclusions? There was certainly no music in the script beyond the diegetic cues. So like when the opening montage being to Baby of Mine and Daughter singing Baby of Mine at the ending. But beyond that, there were no score cues. There was probably too much music initially, you know, and it's probably a first-time director's instinct to be like, okay, let's have this here and that there to underscore the drama and really hammer these points home. But there are certain times when once you see it all together, you realise you don't need it. You know, the power of silence is often so much greater than throwing everything at it with choirs. And then there are times when throwing choirs and brass at it can make it really badass. <laughs> we had an interesting process with the composers on this film. It was a collaboration between two different guys with different strengths that we would lean into at different points in time. And that was a fun thing to loop the sound team in on as well. Because we also moved cues around a little bit. We are a bit cheeky like that. Again, you can play by your own rules on the mixing stage at the final end of the process. And it's ultimately about whatever best services the story, at least to the opinions of that group. And I would ask everybody in the room, do you think this worked there or do you think that worked better here? And I would take everybody's opinions on board. But it was a constant process of discovery with the music, taking things out and also stripping back cues. We had the stems with us, so a lot of the time it was about, like, we don't need as much music here. So in the moments during the mix when something just wasn't feeling right, it wasn't quite in the pocket yet, were you able to tell them why it wasn't in the pocket or were you just going to say, this isn't feeling right, take another run at it? It would be so much more satisfying for your listeners if I could make myself sound like a genius. <laughs> but I don't think that there was ever a moment where we got lost in the mix. And actually my producer, who's a hell of a lot more experienced than me, he's made 40-something movies, You know, he would talk about how the director and the sound team can take reels down a certain path and just lose themselves. Like, hey, you're off the plot here. This is not actually servicing what you need to do. Whereas it felt like we were always building towards a better and better result. And often just in the minor details. Yeah, just layers of finesse, really. I'll try and remember a couple of the, the, the fun little discoveries. Like, it's not necessarily a mixing thing, but one of the thoughts that we had was we had a an intercut from a countdown timer to Hillary attacking a tiled wall to kind of create a shiv from a shard of tile. And so we had these repeated blows and we were like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if those repeated blows came in in sync with the clock from the previous sequence and sort of use this audio transition almost as if a riff on that great sequence from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. There were loads of little things like that, like using 
lightning transitions in the back part of the film to go from the terraformers to the sort of like bombastic march sequence of the characters journeying from A to B. Yeah, it was a real boring joy <laughs> working with these guys. <laughs> Except for the fist fight that Pete and I got into on day three. But after that, it was smooth sailing. Yeah, that, that's you always got to get through that. Day three is the worst. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. It's always great to get a director's point of view on how things went and how best to talk with the sound team. What are you up to next? Yeah, I've been really blessed. Like on the heels of this film coming out and being so well received, there's a lot of opportunity. The one project that's been announced in the press is another sci-fi called Augmented that is with Warner Brothers and Margot Robbie is a producer on that along with Denise DeNovi. Michael Green's writing it with me involved in the story again. So yeah, it could be a lot of fun and we're really excited about that one. But there's a handful of other great projects I can't talk about just yet, but I live in hope that they turn out half as well as the sound in this movie. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what you get out there next because as I mentioned, I'm a big fan of I Am Mother. So thanks a lot for talking to us today. Hey, thanks, man. I look forward to listening to what the guys had to say. <laughs> awesome, this was fantastic. Thank thanks you very man. much. Yeah, no problem. Filmbenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 